So if you want to make your way in your Bible as we continue our study through the letter to the Galatians, I'll remind you that the Apostle Paul writes this letter not to a particular church, but actually to a region, a a group or a series of churches that he planted with Barnabas on his first missionary journey. And so as Paul was uh, making his way through what is now modern-day Turkey, at that time was Asia Minor, he went through and planted these churches in this Galatia region. Now, many of these churches, in fact, uh, a lot of them did not have enough uh, Jewish men to actually have a synagogue. And so you might remember that as Paul would go, he would look for the synagogue and start to bring the word to them first and then to the Gentiles. But in many of these locations, there weren't the necessary 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue actually present. And so the Apostle Paul was bringing this gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ to a largely Gentile population, a group of people that had a polytheistic, or if you think about your Roman and Greek mythology, this was their background of many gods. And so as Paul is bringing them this message of freedom that they can have in Christ, what happened after he left years later is now these Jews from Jerusalem have come into the church and they've said, look, uh, belief in Jesus is wonderful, but what you also need to have salvation is you need to adhere to the law of Moses. You need to also take on the Torah. If you had your young men, they need to be circumcised in order to truly be saved. And for the rest of you, you need to adhere to all of the eating requirements. You need to have kosher foods and all those rules and regulations. And what Paul has now gotten word that this has taken place, he's heartbroken. He's grieved over what's happened to this church that started with this loving relationship. And they've now transitioned towards a legalistic religion. You see, the Apostle Paul, he was focused on their relationship that they had with their Savior. And what's interesting about this, if you look through your New Testament Gospels, what you'll find is Jesus was also continually interested in relationships. He was not at any point in time telling his crew, hey, look, guys, I'd love to spend time with you, but I've got a major speaking engagement. I've got to get there. There's thousands of people waiting to hear from me. No, instead, he was worried about one woman at one well in the middle of Samaria where no decent Jew would go. I must needs go through Samaria, is what he told his crew, for one person. He was also, as he walked through the streets of Jericho, interested in one man that was up in one tree that he said, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. He was very intentional by being relationship-driven. And so as Paul is sharing this with them, he shares with them this letter to the Galatians that is all about grace. That it was God's riches at Christ's expense that we were actually saved. And he begins his letter by sharing about his personal testimony. Now, if you look through the letters of Paul, what you'll find is he, he uses a typical pattern. He most of the time will share the doctrinal truths. A doctrine just simply means teaching. He begins with teaching, but in this spot, in the letter to the Galatians, he actually starts with his personal testimony, even before he shares with them a doctrine. And so I've encouraged you over the last several weeks to work on and hone what God has done in your life, your personal testimony, because the beautiful thing about your testimony is people can't argue with it. Especially in churches, they love to argue doctrine and theological points, but what they cannot argue is your personal experience with Christ Jesus, because it's your experience. And so Paul shares to begin with there his experience, but he doesn't leave it there, because the thing with the testimony, while it's powerful, 
And it is uh, unbelievable to be able to share your testimony. It's also very subjective. Meaning, when I say that, that uh, when you share, especially if you've got a powerful testimony, like Paul did, people's first reaction is, well, God never spoke to me that way. Never knocked me off a horse on the way to Damascus. I guess I don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus. And so what Paul does is quickly he follows up subjective testimony with objective truth. He goes into the doctrine, he goes into the teaching to say each of us are going to have a different experience with Christ, but he is the same. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he asks them a series of six questions, and then he follows it up in chapter 3 with a series of six answers to those questions from Scripture, which never changes. So for us, lots of times when the word doctrine is thrown out in church, we get a little bit freaked out. We're like, ah, it's a big word. It sounds scary. It just simply means teaching. And the reason it's scary and the reason we get all tripped up is because many people that love to argue doctrine, um, they forgot the object of the doctrine, which is Jesus Christ. Him crucified, him resurrected. It's him and him alone. And when we get our eyes off of Jesus... Immediately, we start looking on and picking at people and wanting to pick things apart. When the teaching was supposed to be all about our need for a Savior and His provision as our Savior. And so he goes to the Old Testament to lay this out for them in chapters 3 and 4 to give them that baseline, but he doesn't leave it there. He's going to follow it up as he does in all his letters with application. That knowledge is wonderful, but if there's no application, there's no wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And so he's going to say, this is how grace can apply in your life. And so that is the summary of the book of Galatians. But we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul writes, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father." And so Paul is continuing this idea that really began back in chapter 3 where he shares that the law was to be a schoolmaster, a tutor, to point us to our need for a Savior. But as the law points us to our need for a Savior, we are also all sons and daughters through the inheritance, through the blood of Christ. And so if we are heirs, sons and daughters of God, to an inheritance, what does that inheritance look like? Well, Paul jumps in here and he says, as an heir, when you were a child, you did not receive all of the blessings of the inheritance. And if you think about this in our modern day, at least the way my brain works, uh, none of you that are parents, when your child was little, would you give them their entire inheritance at the age of, say, uh, five? Now, I've got a five-year-old, and and I would be a fool to, while she is uh, due an inheritance from Angela and I, if I were to give Madeline my credit card right now, like, how responsible would that be? She'd be thrilled. She'd be, you know, making it rain when she went to Walmart. But the reality is that's not responsible of me because she's not ready to live that out. And so for uh, baby Madeline, what she loves for breakfast is fudge stripes, right? Like, and, and the reality is fudge stripes are awesome, but they're not awesome for breakfast. Well, actually, they are awesome for breakfast. But, in, but she can tell from me, who has lived a little bit longer than her, this is what happens when you eat fudge stripes for breakfast, And so I have to, as her father, direct her that maybe we should make some healthier choices and enjoy the fudge stripes at more of a limited level. And so this is what Paul is saying, is that the law was given to us to actually direct us in love, 
not in anger, as we as parents give the law to our children to direct them in love until they can grow into the ability to really fully appreciate and take hold of their inheritance. Now, verse 3. Paul says, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. And these elements of the world he's referring to are the law. You see, the law does a wonderful job of pointing us to our need for a Savior, but it can never change the heart. It's an outside-in pressure that gets applied. It can direct us. It can keep us going on the straight and narrow, but it can't change what I have actually going on inside me. But verse 14... Verse 4, excuse me, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so from the very beginning is where Paul's going to go back to. Not the beginning even of our scripture, but even before time began, Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That's some kind of love. And he did that willingly on our behalf. And when the appointed time came, and that appointed time, we walked through that a bit uh, in Easter, uh, the Easter services, and we looked at the prophecies of Daniel. When that appointed time was for him to come as a man, for him to be born of a woman, he actually subjected himself to the law. He subjected himself to the very law that he gave to us to direct us so that we could be called sons and daughters. And so what a, what a sacrifice. Now, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so, now that we are sons, we have the ability to, in this relationship, call on God as our Father. Now, this would have been mind-blowing for the Jews of that day. They would have never referred to God as Father. They would have called Him Adonai or Master. They would call Him Elohim, which is God. They would perhaps refer to the covenant name of Yahweh, which means I am, but they would never call Him Father. And what Paul is saying here is because of the work of Christ, we now have the ability to call Him our Father. But the word actually is even deeper than that because in the Hebrew, it actually is closer to our word, which is daddy. Think about that kind of a relationship. I don't know about you, but if you have kids, uh, my kids rarely would call me father unless you speak in the old English in your house. Oh, father. Wherefore art thou, father? Like, no one's going to speak to their dad like that, but I get a lot of dad and daddy, especially when they need something. It's a much deeper relationship. And think about what he has now allowed us and given us access to because we can call our God Daddy. We can crawl right up on his lap and ask him for things. In fact, he encourages us in this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we can grab a hold of that idea as the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That because of this relationship, we can now bust right on in the throne room of God and go right up on his lap and go, Dad, I need help. Dad, I'm struggling in this spot. Dad, I need you. Would you please step in and help me? Daddy. And it's a way different relationship. And so for these people hearing this, this would have been mind-blowing at that time. Now, verse 7, he says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Under the law, we were all slaves to the law. But now we've been freed from it. We're actually considered sons. And how much more access we have? How much more grace do we see bestowed upon us? And no longer is there this idea that we often get that if I don't do rightly, God's going to punish me. He is just waiting around the corner to strike me down, to knock me out. He's waiting to punish me. That is completely fictitious. He's waiting to bless you. In fact, most of the time, what you, if you think back to your life, he has mostly blessed you even when you weren't seeking him at all. He was so excited about blessing you, he was blessing you even when you weren't doing rightly. I don't have this on the screen, but when you think about Jesus sharing in Luke chapter 11, this is what he says about this relationship. He says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, if if we, even in these broken relationships, none of you, if your kid came to you and said, hey, I need fill in the blank, would intentionally give them something to harm them. And that's us in our broken nature. How much more will God give to us of the Holy Spirit? Give to us exactly what we need if we come to him. Our dad loves to forgive, you see. And that, the result, the fruit from that is it should make us thankful. And where thankfulness exists, arrogance cannot. Think about that. Those two are mutually exclusive. Where thankfulness exists, you cannot be arrogant. You cannot be pompous. You cannot be selfish and also thankful at the same time. Because as I'm thankful, what I'm really saying is, you have done something for me that I could not do myself. I couldn't do that for me. You've done that for me. Therefore, I am thankful. And all of my arrogance and all my pride begins to go away. Now, if you're like me, I quickly pick that back up again. But as we're thankful, it flushes that stuff out of our lives. And he's given us that kind of ability Now, verse 8 says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. And so Paul in verse 8 is going back to this relationship they had with all these polytheistic gods. That every time you upset the rain god, that god would turn off the rain cloud. And if you upset the sun god, it it wouldn't shine any longer. And so each one of these relationships, when they upset a god or made a god mad or didn't offer the right kind of sacrifice, they were punished by that god. And what Paul's saying is, in that relationship, you served those gods, but they were not gods at all. But in verse 9, now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain. What Paul says in no uncertain terms is you've been freed from this bondage of all these multi-gods, What in the world are you doing? Why are you turning back to be enslaved again? You worked so hard to sacrifice just the right thing to just the right God so he'd be happy with you. And now you understand the truth. Why are you turning yourself back to live a life of bondage? 
And then you think about how silly that is. I mean, all those gods and all the ways they worshiped and sacrificed, and that's so silly. We would never do that. And then you think about what has happened in church, especially in the Western church. And man, we've got our prayers we repeat, and we've got our incense we light, and we've got our holidays we got to keep. We have all these things that we must do, and why do we feel like we must do them? I would submit to you that more often than not, we are trying to keep that God happy. We are trying to make sure that God on that totem isn't angry with me or he might punish me. Now, it's not the fault of the incense or the fault of the prayers or the fault of the holiday. The issue with it is our own heart. And what God actually desires from each of us is a relationship. What Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 is that you have taken up all of these festivals and feasts and new moons, but you've forgotten the substance. You've worshipped the shadow, but you forgot the substance of what the shadow actually was all about. And if you think about this, it would be like, especially on Memorial Day when we're considering our veterans and their service, this would be like a soldier going off to war and being away on active duty for a year, maybe two years. And the heartbreak that would be for a family. And then to have that Soldier, come back home. So excited to be walking down the driveway. Proud of what had taken place. Thankful to be back with his family. And the wife and the kids, they come running down the driveway. And then they do a big dog pile on top of his shadow. Like, what? Wait a minute. Like, I, I'm right here. You're, you're hugging the ground. You're hugging the shadow. You're celebrating the feast, the festival, the new moon. You burned all the incense you could burn. But the substance is here. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus experiences when we forget the work that he did. When we instead go and celebrate all these other things that are not Christ. And so what David would write in Psalm 51 is he is heartbroken over his own sin. Remembering our Father loves to forgive. He desires a relationship. In Psalm 51 verse 16 he says, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. What is God actually after in your life? He's after your heart. That's it. He is after a broken and a contrite heart. Are you coming to your Father with a heart seeking to be forgiven? Are you just wanting to crawl up on His lap and say, Dad, I messed up. That's the relationship He wants to have with us. Now, back to the text at hand, Paul says in uh, verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that I, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. In verse 14, in my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel, or the same word as messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. And so what Paul says here in verse 12 is that, brethren, I was like you. In fact, I was like these Jews coming from Jerusalem. My name was Saul of Tarsus. I was a Jewish man, born a Roman citizen, and I had it all going on. I was so zealous. In fact, I killed Christians. I was so after the law. I was like you. In fact, I was even more than like you. But because of Jesus Christ, I was freed. He was freed from all that. 
And so as Paul was intending to go on his missionary journey, what we know in reading through Acts is that God divinely interrupted that journey. Paul had a desire to go to a particular part of Asia, but God redirected him. And what he's sharing here is he had divine interruptions of physical health. You understand that sometimes God can divinely interrupt our plan? I don't know about you, but I'm really good at making plans, and God is really good at divinely interrupting those plans. What Paul's saying is, I showed up in this region, in Galatia, because of a divine interruption in the flesh. Most likely, Paul was exceedingly sick. He had some serious ailments that were going on, but it did not stop him from sharing the gospel. He was not wealthy, he was not healthy, and yet he still shared with these people in Galatia, and they believed. This, by the way, completely flies in the faith of the health and wealth gospel. How many people get up and share on Sundays, if you believe, you can receive, right? If you just believe it, name it and claim it. The reason you're sick is because you're not doing your part. But here's Paul. I mean, maybe the greatest Christian in all the New Testament, and he's sick. He is not feeling well, and yet what travels is the Word of God. Even when we don't feel it, the Word of God saves. It seeps in. The washing of the water of the Word is what cleanses. And so Paul's saying, I was suffering. You saw the trial I was in, and yet you still believed. In verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul's saying, what did you receive when I shared the gospel with you? You received Christ. You were changed from the inside out. And as he's there suffering, we don't know exactly what this thorn in the flesh he writes to us about in 2 Corinthians was, but here he makes reference to his own eyes. So it's possible that Paul had this extremely painful, uh, perpetual pink eye that was oozing and, and just nasty and, and difficult for him to deal with and difficult for others to even look upon. And yet, in the midst of this, the word was received. And the word was the thing that actually did the work in these people's lives, and it produced something in them. You see, the word of God that will not return void, what it will do is produce fruit in your life if you receive it. What is the fruit that Paul's going to talk about in Galatians chapter 5? It's love. And when you bite into the fruit of love, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And so as he's sharing here with these Galatians, what he says is, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if it would have helped. These people showed tremendous kindness because of the work of the Word of God in their heart. And he said, you, you loved me this much. You would have plucked out your own eyes for me. He continues in verse 16 and says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Paul says, look, I have shared with you the truth. I shared with you the truth the first time I met with you. I'm continuing to share the truth of the message, which is actually the thing that transforms people. You listened to it before. What, why then did you change now? Verse 17, he says, They, being these Judaizers, zealously court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. What legalism always does in a church setting is it, it works its way in and then it begins to want to tell you that you're special and you need to be like the rest of us special people. The few, the chosen, the financially solvent. 
You got a check you can write? Start writing it, right? Like that's what legalism does in a church. It begins to work its way in. And this is exactly what's happening. What Paul says is they are zealous, but they're zealous to have all of you. They want to take your life over completely, all the way down to your checkbook. Now, verse 18. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. So the zeal wasn't the problem. It was what they put their zeal in. Not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. I've got doubts of what's going on. You see, these people have come in and they've wanted to teach them and indoctrinate them. But what Paul's saying is, I never desired to come in and make theologians. I wasn't looking to come in and make the most intellectual people. The reason I showed up is to see regeneration, to see transformation, to see people change from the inside out. But immediately in churches, what we begin to worry about is what about attendance? What about works? What about baptisms? What about healings? Here's the thing. None of those things are bad, but they're all a byproduct. They're a byproduct of transformation happening in people's lives. We tend to look at the byproduct and wonder if that's the, that's the real thing. That's the substance. But the substance is actually what's happening in someone's heart, in their life. Is Jesus changing you from the inside out? Over and over again, you'll see plans. And at least I get these kind of emails. The latest one I'm getting is the, the playbook on how to grow your church. And the playbook is all the ways that you can grow your church to over 200 in less than a year. And it makes me want to throw up. Because if the purpose is to only grow numbers, then where's the regeneration? Where's the transformation in people's hearts and in their lives? That's the way the church actually grows. It's not by numbers. It's by lives. Life on life. And so all these other things end up being a byproduct of a changed life. Verse 21, tell me, who des- tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? Are you listening to what they're telling you is what he's saying. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. And so Paul's going to take them back to Genesis, back to the story of Abraham again. And he's going to use this to make his point. And what he's going to say, first of all, is uh, it's important to understand in the life of Abraham that God doesn't always immediately do everything that he promised you he was going to do. And if you think about the life of Abraham, I mean, at the age of 75, he gets called into service. He makes his way to the land of promise, and God says, I'm going to make you Abraham, the father of many nations. But you know what Abraham didn't have? A kid. He had no sons. He had no one to give the inheritance to. How could he be the father of many nations when he doesn't even have a child? And so this promise is given, and yet 10 years go by, and nothing seems to take place. Nothing happens. And so as they make their way down to Egypt, his wife Sarah gets an idea. You know what? Maybe you didn't hear God right. Maybe you, you heard the promise of God, but maybe you misinterpreted it a little bit. Maybe it's not me that was to give you a son, but perhaps you should take on a surrogate. You should take on my handmaid, Hagar. And so what Abraham does is he takes on his, 
her handmaiden Hagar, and she gives birth to Ishmael, a baby boy, the son of inheritance, seemingly. But what Paul says is this is the son of the law, a child of the flesh. Their flesh produced this. And this always happens when we decide to do a work on our own. Outside of his spirit, we make ourselves an Ishmael. But what God says is that I didn't want you to have an Ishmael. I wanted you to have an Isaac. And so if you fast forward 13 more years in the life of Abraham, God shows up to visit him as he's back in the land of promise. And as he shows up to Abraham's tent, he says, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Oh, yeah, thank you, God. I've got Ishmael. God bless Ishmael. But God says, wait a minute, that's, that's not at all what I said. I said, you're going to have a son by Sarah. Now, at this point in time, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89. And she's listening to this conversation on the other side of the tent. Probably not a huge tent, I'm guessing. She listens to this conversation, and she laughs out loud. And in one of the funniest exchanges in all of the Old Testament, as she's laughing, God says, hey, why is Sarah laughing? And Sarah pops her head around the corner and says, oh, I wasn't laughing. And God says, yeah, you were. I heard you laughing. Like, this is God, you know. He knows you're laughing. And so, as she laughs about this potential promise of God, a year later, she gives birth to a son at the age of 90. And Abraham is the ripe old age of 100. And they name him Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. <laughs> they, they name their son Laughter. Because of the work God did in their life. This is what the promise does. Now, continuing on in verse 24, Paul says these things are symbolic or these are an analogy for us, uh, an allegory. He says these things are symbolic for they are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar was a picture of the law or the bondage under the law, whereas the liberty that was in Sarah is the son of promise. In verse 25, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is under, which is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is mother to us all. And so here you have Hagar is represented in Mount Sinai where the law was given. And what he says is this is what Jerusalem is today. All these people you want to follow and you want to listen to, they all have to live under the law. Therefore, they're going to die under the law. This is what Jerusalem is. But Jerusalem was supposed to be, the name means the flow of peace. And yet these people are experiencing no peace under this law. But what God says is, I want you to live under grace and in liberty. And so as these men come in, they try to dictate the work of the heart, but the law can never legislate our hearts. I repeat that. And in Psalm 55, verse 21, this is what the psalmist says regarding our hearts, what actually is produced in our own hearts. He says, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. This is what mankind actually produces inside us. This is what exists in us. What James says in James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, where do wars and strifes begin? But they begin within man. They begin in our own hearts. 
wars and strifes to actually start from within us. This is what the law cannot work out of us. And so he continues to say, what you're waiting for, what you're looking for is actually the Jerusalem which is from above. He's speaking in, in Revelation about the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem which comes from above is one that does flow with complete and total peace because it comes from freedom and liberty that is in Christ Jesus. Now verse 27, he says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. This is a quote from Isaiah 54. And what he's referencing now is, Here are the Gentiles. They've had no fruit in their lives. They are a bunch of polytheistic pagans who are going to hell in a handbasket. And yet here they are as they receive Jesus they're not able to actually conceive children. They can have children of promise. The grace of God allows them who had no children, they were barren, to actually go out and have many children, whereas the ones that were supposed to be the children of promise, these Israelites, they are going to be the ones that are barren. And so we see that now playing out. These Gentiles bearing fruit as the church grows. Now, verse 28, we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. What he's saying is we are now Isaac. We are now the children of promise. And by the way, if you've invited Christ into your life and you've asked him to come and do a work in your heart, uh, what you'll find is it's downright hilarious what God will do. I mean, it is downright funny what God can do in our lives. I look back at my life at what God has done. There is no way, shape, or form or reason for me to be sitting here with you right now. It is funny to me. I'm an introvert. I'm just as happy to be sitting in a corner, staring at a wall, reading a book. Not sitting up here with you, sharing the gospel, right? But God can do an amazing work in our life. So much so it makes us just want to laugh. Like, God, you are amazing. And as we accept him and let him do a work in us, be prepared to be amazed at his promise and what he can do in us. So much so it will make you laugh out loud. Now, verse 29. But he... But as he who, who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. What is Paul talking about? We go back to the story of Genesis in the life of Ishmael and Isaac. What happened is young Isaac has now come to the age where he's able to be weaned off. So no longer is he drinking straight from the tap. And apparently they had a big old party whenever that took place. And so they throw a party for him being weaned off. And so they're all celebrating. Way to go, Isaac! But here's Ishmael over in the corner, now 17 or 18 years old, and he's making fun of little brother. Laughing at little brother. What a baby. What an immature little boy he is. And so he begins to make fun of what is happening in the life of Isaac. And what Paul is saying is, so too it'll be with you. As those who come in and claim to be more spiritually mature, and yet they're legalists. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And what they'll want to do is tell you, you're just a spiritual baby. You can't go do this because you're not mature like we are. That's why you're so happy. You haven't been miserable enough to be a Christian yet. 
you got to be as disappointed as the rest of us. Well, there's no wonder nobody shows up to church nowadays, right? Like it's a, they're a bunch of legalistic sin sniffers going around looking to sniff stuff out in everybody's life and they suck the Holy Spirit right out of the place. This is what Paul's saying. This is exactly what happens to us is that this false belief that we're more spiritually mature than we look down on those that we think are less than. You're not at the place that I am yet. And so his answer for that in verse 29, or verse 30 is, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. You got to remove it. You got to get it out. It's going to stop all the growth in a place. And so verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And so here's the reality about the law and about liberty. The law is a wonderful schoolmaster. The law does and is perfect at exactly what God gave it to us in the first place for. It points to our need for a Savior. The law is a tremendous monitor. It's a tremendous at keeping guardrails, at keeping us in check. But what the law is not is a mother. The law can monitor us. It cannot mother us. It does not truly care. And what it points out is that we need a promise, but the law can never produce a promise. I'm going to repeat that. The law points out that we need a promise, but it can never produce a promise. A few things to note about the law as Paul wraps up this fourth chapter is that first of all, note with me that the law came after grace. Lots of times we can get it in our head that we have to start with the law and then grace gets to follow up the law. But that's not at all scriptural. It's not true. Grace existed before the law ever did. And grace was always God's plan. His initial plan was to show grace upon us. In fact, it was Abraham's belief that was accounted to him for righteousness. God was willing to be gracious to him 400 years before the law ever existed. Long before there was a Hagar... There was Sarah. Think about the story. She was his first. But then Hagar came in after. This was God's plan. But who demanded the law was you and I. We wanted the law because there's got to be some way I can do this on my own. There's got to be some way I can figure this out. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can figure out a way to heaven. And so God said, if that's the way you want to figure it out, here's the law. Oh, by the way, If you don't keep all of it in its entirety, you're a lawbreaker and the wages of sin is death. Now, the thing is, there's not just 10 laws. There's 613 if you look through your Old Testament. We can't keep the top 10, but there's 613 if you really want to roll like that. And the reality is that we cannot. What the law actually shows is it gives us a mirror. It shows how much we need grace. It's this cyclical thing. We desired the law, but what the law actually proves is how much I need a Savior, how much I need His grace in my life. Now, the second thing to note about the law is that as the law materialized, it actually materialized itself in the world. What I mean by that is, as Abraham was there in the promised land, where did he first come across Hagar? It was when he went to Egypt. 
God positioned Abraham in the promised land. And he said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. But what happened is, as it happens in our life, things got difficult. Things got dicey in the promised land. There was a great famine in the land. Abraham, personally, he has no sons. Things have got to be a little tenuous at home. And then uh, for his family and the people he's trying to take care of, there's a famine in the land. And so he gets this great idea, I'm going to go down to Egypt. But what you know about Scripture is, because you guys are becoming Bible students, is that Egypt is always a picture of the world. And so Abraham leaves the promised land and he goes into the world and it's here that he meets Hagar. And understand that when we hang out in Egypt, when we go into the world, it always has an effect. And it doesn't just affect us, it always affects other people. I was considering this this week. Do you think that in, in Abraham's life as he's there in Egypt and Sarah has this idea to give Hagar over to him to take and to have a child with. Don't you know that deep down Sarah was probably crying out, don't take her. Could you just believe that maybe I could be enough or that God's promise could be enough? Would you please just believe? And yet she was trying to resort to this as figuring out a workaround, but you know deep down that for any woman, they're going to want to say, would you please just stick with me? But here he is in the world. He's being swayed by the world. It's so easy for us to drift into that. And then it has a lasting effect on all those around us when the promise of God isn't enough. And so legalism, what we find out is that it, it doesn't produce carnality. But legalism, it, it actually is carnality. It is our desire, our own pride to do it on our own. This is what the world tells us and directs us into. Now, how do we live in this spot that we're in, stuck in Babylon, as it were? Titus is written this letter by Paul in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, as we wind down. And Paul writes to Titus and he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. To the pure, those are determined to set their mind on the pure things and the things of God, all things are pure. But as we allow and let the world seep into us and begin to defile us, all things begin to be defiled. There is no good before long. And so this is the reality that legalism always makes us into slaves, puts us into a place of bondage. But freedom in Christ, the promise of Jesus makes us sons. Now you can look at a person living a certain way. Me, for example, I'll, I'll pick on me. You could look at my life and where I'm at now and say, man, he's living under a lot more rules than he used to if you knew me before. And to the outside looking in, that is very much true. But the reality is from the inside out, I'm living with almost no rules that I have to do. It's a get to. I, I get to not look at that thing and listen to that thing and watch that thing and smoke that thing and drink that thing and go to that place. I get to not do that. And it's no longer a requirement that God is imposing upon me, but it's an inside-out relationship. I know that he has the absolute best 
in mind for me, and I'm living in freedom. There is no more worry about any of that other stuff. One last spot, speaking of that, I know I said I was done, but I was almost done. First John chapter 5, verse 3, this is what John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. But it doesn't stop there. And they are not burdensome. The love of God, him working on you, is that we get to keep his commandments. And all those things that used to seem like burdens and being imposed down upon us, they're no longer a burden whatsoever. Living life as a son or a daughter in Christ is a get-to kind of relationship. No longer a burden of have-tos. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for what you're up to in our lives. Lord, as we think about and consider what it is to live a get-to life, Father, would you please come in and transform us from the inside out? Lord, would you come in to us, each one of us individually, and begin to do a work in us that if you had told it to us, we wouldn't even believe it. Father, I thank you that you pour out your love upon us. I thank you that your desire for us is to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or think or hope. Lord, help us to be able to live in that freedom. Help us to be able to live in that truth. And if there are any that aren't living in that freedom, instead living under the bondage of sin and death and legalism and carnality, Lord, help us to be able to just accept you. To just say, I can't do it on my own any longer. You've got to do it for me from the inside out. You are so ready for us to crawl up on your lap and call you Abba, Father, Daddy, and forgive us of all of our sins. Lord, I'm thankful for that. Thankful for that. Father, help us to be a people of thankfulness at the work that you're up to in each of our lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a final song.
to share something really quick. I was thinking about this during these past couple songs. Um, my brother got married about a year ago to a girl who uh, was put up for adoption. She had some really abusive parents. Um, and it's been amazing getting to see how she, who was you know, kind of without a family, is now um, a part of our family. And uh, just seeing her with our family and, and just reflecting on the fact that like she belongs to us now, it's just amazing. And, and that totally reflects how we as Christians are brought into this family of God when really we didn't belong um, but Jesus brought us in, and we are his children, and he is our father. And so let's rejoice, because that's amazing, and we're all his children. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus, so thank you so much. Addie, let's give it for Addie. She was awesome today. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it any better than that. So thank God for adoption. <laughs> Praise the Lord. God bless you guys as you go on about your week uh, living as sons and daughters. Praise the Lord. Thank you.